All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Hello, friends, teachers, educators. Welcome to the Teacher Talking Time Podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. Today we have Brett Reynolds on the show. Brett got his start teaching English in Japan in 1992. In 2003, he moved to Humber College, where he currently teaches EAP and the TESOL program there. He was also editor of TESOL Ontario's Contact magazine from 2012 until this year. Brett has recently written an article for the ELT Journal on the comments section titled Against Teaching Collocations. Perhaps you might be interested in listening to this podcast if you don't like or if you are completely opposed to this idea. Um, that Brett is going to be suggesting. I am going to ask him lots of questions and I really hope you guys enjoy the show. Hey out there, I'm Rocio from El Salvador. This is Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. So I'm here with Brett Reynolds. Brett, huge thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so,、uh, so Brett, you have recently written an article for、um, the ELT Journal on the comments section, and the、yeah. title was Against Teaching Collocations. Right. It's good so, to be against something. <laughs> yes. Are you, would you describe yourself as the kind of person who is usually swimming against the tide?、Um, I, I suppose. My colleagues might uh, uh, describe me that way. Yeah.、Um, I, I think that's probably fair.、Uh, not entirely. I mean, you know,、uh, I'm not、uh, advocating all sorts of completely oddball、um, <laughs> ideas for, for teaching. But、um, yeah, something like collocations that, that has been、uh, really coming along and.、Uh, Taking over the field, I like to sort of look at that and say, is that really a good move to make?、Yeah. And、uh, I guess I'm, I'm happy to,、uh, to push against something that's coming out.、Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not some sort of、uh, rebel or anything, but、uh, yeah. Well, perhaps we, I mean, just to comment on what you just said.、Um, I like the fact that you are, you have this, this critical, you add this critical voice to the industry in Canada. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast. So perhaps we could start off by talking a little bit about the genesis of the article. What inspired you to write such a, what, what some colleagues would describe as a controversial piece? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.、Um, well, I mean, you know. The, the maybe the anti genesis goes way back.、Uh, you know, when Michael Lewis was publishing、um, his stuff about the lexical approach,、mm -hmm. um, I was eating it up. I loved it.、Uh, I read it,、uh, I thought it was fantastic. It looked different, it looked new. And、um, I, every time he had a new book out, I would、uh, go and I, I was living in Japan at the time.、Mm. And there's this、uh, bookstore there called Kinokunia, which、um, has, it, it's, well, the one in Shinjuku is, is this six floor massive bookstore. 
and one floor is pretty much dedicated to English books, and one section of that was uh, English language teaching materials and research materials. And I couldn't really afford to buy uh, these, you know, $60 books at the time. Um, but in Japan, they have this uh, cultural acceptance of something they call tachiyomi. Um, tachi means standing and yomi means reading. So stand and read. <laughs> and, and, you know, now you go into Starbucks and you can sit down there, and, or I'm sorry, you go into chapters and you can sit down there and have right. Starbucks coffee and, and read. But in the early 90s, if you sat there and re read a book in the bookstore, you know, you'd get really dirty looks. <laughs> Probably get arrested or something. But uh, yeah, in Japan, um, you know, I, I would go to the bookstore and I would just stand there for hours and, and read uh, Michael Lewis or the Cambridge Applied Linguistics books or whatever was coming out and uh, really look forward to, to these things coming out. Um, and I guess I, at the time, I was really looking for some good data uh, from my classroom because I was teaching in a high school then. Mm -hmm. And the many of the collocations and things that he was talking about, his focus was really uh, teaching uh, business people in Europe. And um, so teaching Japanese high school students uh, was a different set of collocations, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I don't remember when I first got access to the British National Corpus. Um, but uh, it was after I left Japan that um, that Mark Davies put the the Coca out, and um, you know started getting access to these things and and looking at how frequent these collocations really were, and I guess that sort of put the question into my mind because you know I was coming up with these collocations that Lewis was suggesting. Um, that were, you know, happening less than once in a million words. And um, so, so at that point, I, I sort of started thinking, well, is this really going to be all that useful for my learners, I suppose. Hmm. Um, so it really started out from more of a frequency and uh, pure utility point of view. Okay. Um, one of the first things you mentioned in the article, I think that was, I mean, you based your argument a little bit on, uh, I think you go back to like the eighties with Yorio who mentions, yeah. um, I think she suggests that most of the idioms that we're currently teaching our students are in fact, um, unnecessary. Yeah. So again, just to make sure that we're on the same wavelength here when it comes to idioms, what, what, how would you define an idiom? Like what's your definition of an idiom? Oh, uh, I, I think a pretty conventional uh, definition. I haven't spent a lot of time um, thinking about how exactly I, I would define it, but uh, you know, a set of words um, with uh, limited or no uh, variability in the words mm -hmm. um, where the meaning of the set of words really isn't accessible from any of the individual words themselves. Right. Um, I was, you know, thinking about what, especially that specific argument by Yorio, I do agree with you that most of most of most idioms that we we teach are in fact unnecessary. Such as, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. Yeah. Which, by the way, is one of those idioms that I've I probably only heard one one person actually using it. It was like my my mother-in-law who is you know in her late sixties. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, your definition of idioms is is. I would say good, but what I'm thinking now is, of course, we have an aspect of idioms that I find is somewhat useful for students is the idea that language is literal and also metaphorical. And a lot of, a lot of idioms, I don't see them only as those uh, fixed um, phrases that cannot change, like two heads are better than one. Mm -hmm. but also, I'm also thinking about the, let's expand this metaphor, this um, definition to, um, language that can be used in a non-literal way. For example, mm -hmm. the verb catch, for instance, mm -hmm. you can say, you know, yesterday, this weekend I went fishing, but I caught nothing. 
So that's right. the literal meaning. Yeah. But then we have yesterday I caught the bus because my car wouldn't start. Yeah. Well, you know, for example, uh, Brett caught my attention when he wrote this, um, this article. Can mm -hmm. you wait? I need to catch my breath. So we have all these metaphorical uses of a word, which I yeah. believe are often more common than the literal ones. So mm -hmm. would, would that be, in your, in your opinion, would that be a useful way of teachers or something that teachers should spend more time dealing with rather than just teaching those archaic um, idiomatic expressions or idioms? Um, yeah, I think uh, metaphor is pretty central to language and most of the words that we use today, I, I would guess, um, if you trace them back far enough, uh, probably don't have the meanings they have now. And uh, even some of the central meanings that we think of right now, uh, probably at some point were metaphorical extensions of, of some other meaning. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when to uh, base a word and, and say, well, this is the actual meaning. And then how far away from that you get to say, well, this is the new metaphorical meaning. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly bringing students' attention to uh, the idea of metaphor and um, how, the, how words can be extended metaphorically in, in their meaning. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, simply by virtue of speaking their first language, mm -hmm. are pretty much aware of that. But um, if it doesn't occur to them to... Uh, to apply that same principle to the second language. And it, I think it generally does. I mean, I want to give students credit. Yeah. Um, but where it doesn't, sure, uh, bringing their attention to that, I, I think can be useful. So in your, in your paper, basically in your, in your article, you extend that the same claim um, that Yo-Yo made back in the 80s applies mm. to collocations. Again, that we have this, um, I think you used the word, increased interest in teaching and learning um, collocations yeah. is often the is often the result of native speakerism. We're going to break that down in, into parts, but let's first of all talk a little bit about this increasing interest in in teaching and learning collocations. Okay. Why do you think that is the case? Why? Because I've I've seen that in colleges, yeah. universities. I'm not going to mention places that where I'm currently working, but I see that there is this this overemphasis on teaching collocations, almost at the expense of actually teaching students how to actually acquire vocab. And mm -hmm. most of the time what we're doing is we're just teaching collocations randomly, uh -huh. um, especially with EA, uh, academic words, like uh, from, the, from the academic word list. Yeah. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. I want you to comment on that. Um, well, I, I mean, I haven't done the anthropology on this, so I'm, <laughs> I would be speculating. Uh, but looking just at myself, as I said, when... Michael Lewis's books were coming out in the 90s. Um, I thought they were pretty exciting. They uh, were. It was, it was really different from um, what I'd seen before. And um, it seemed new. And he was such an engaging writer. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. He, he had a really strong voice. And he wasn't afraid to pull punches. Especially I, in the English verb, I would say. The English verb to me is just, it's a slap on the face. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one, one of his books, um, he, he was saying, I don't have a, a list of references because I, I just find that academically pretentious and uh, I, I don't go in for that, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, uh, you know, and I was in my 20s and uh, I was looking for some way to stand out and be different. Um, I was working in Japan at the time. And I mean, obviously, this explanation has gone a little off the tracks from your your general comment. Why do or question? Why do people in general do this? Okay, we'll, we'll come back. I to was it. working in general at the uh, in Japan and feeling really like Japan wanted me to conform, and I didn't want to conform. And so but this conform to what? Conform to? Well, I mean, there were ministry textbooks and mm. there were um sort of ways that the uh, i was teaching in a high school and there were ways that the japanese teachers were were teaching mm. and um and yeah sort of 
don't don't rock the boat just just go ahead with whatever we're doing uh follow along and and things will be fine and i think a lot of people probably um felt that this was a new idea that it was exciting and it was worth trying out mm. um but i think yeah the the force of lewis's um writing probably had uh something to do with it and then just sort of the rise of vocabulary um and paul nation's work and and that kind of thing and uh although i don't think paul really spent all that much time talking about uh collocations he really brought vocabulary to the fore and he himself is such a um he doesn't have the the um the same oomph that uh lewis has mm -hmm. but he's just so helpful and and thoughtful and useful and practical mm -hmm. and uh so i think i think certainly there were a number of personalities uh that at least in my case uh pushed my interest in in collocations mm. um and then I guess uh, the access to corpus data, you know, because um, as I say, in the early nineties, really, I didn't have access to a corpus. And then as the, uh, the Brigham Young corpora became available and more web-based corpora became available and some CDs, I even, I remember ordering the, the British national corpus on CD-ROM. Oh, wow. Nobody <laughs> uses those anymore. Um, so then, you know, people started to get access to the data and I think that probably drove it. So to a certain extent, I think it, it might've been um, a, a technology looking for a need rather than a need looking for a, a technology. It's very interesting. So I think now that collocation to me has become a, fashionable trend as well mm -hmm. everyone wants to teach collocations because but i feel like very few people understand the underlying principles of what it means to really teach collocations um one of the things you mentioned is that when we are when the teacher is the one imposing the collocations on, mm -hmm. on the students or like as you said earlier um teaching collocations that are not highly frequent mm. um, you describe that as as uh, native speakerism so before we jump into that mm -hmm. can you explain to our listeners what you mean by native speakerism well i uh you know in, in some of your earlier podcasts this has come up um you you had one uh i forget um uh, Marek. Marek. yeah Marek. yeah um who uh, has a, an association for non-native speaker teachers. And mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, from an employment uh, standpoint, it's, it's difficult for um, people who are so-called non-native speaker teachers to uh, get um, employed. Um, but I think historically and even today, most of the models that we see in language textbooks and in language teaching materials um, are, uh, if not actually native speakers of English, um, then certainly are aiming at being native speakers right. of English. Um, they, they may be somewhat fictional. Uh, but that's really set as the... Um, as the target, as the goal. And uh, I think some pe many people probably today uh, are rethinking this. Um, but uh, I think as a young teacher, certainly um, I wasn't, I, it, it didn't occur to me that there would be anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was in my, well, even when I started at Humber, um, which was 2003, I don't think that I would have, um, presented, 
uh, audio recordings or um, or texts that where um, you know obviously heavily German accented or um, you know had ways of um, texts that were written in ways that I wouldn't write them. I, I think I would have aimed for uh, what I thought as accurate um, English. Um, but as I started teaching teachers, and I guess, you know, there's been a lot of change in, in the culture, and, and you see it with um, much more openness to LGBTQ uh, people, um, and, and all, all sorts of things, you know, the, especially in Canada, perhaps, um, the culture is changing and, and we're trying to incorporate more and more people. And you start to think, well, why not these other, um, speakers of English? Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. This episode of Teacher Talking Time is brought to you by English Central. English Central is by far one of the best source for textbooks and resources in ELT. I don't know about you, but I've been going there for about 15 years. And whether you're an institution or instructor, they have a great selection for you from business to general to academic English and even test prep. So if you're a teacher looking to develop, they have tons of great PD books as well, including two friends of ours who have been on this podcast, Mr. Marek Kikoviak with Teaching English as a Lingua Franca and Neil McCutcheon who released Activities for Task-Based Learning. Check out the English Central online at englishcentral.net or if you're in Toronto, they're right at Young and St. Clair Avenue. Talk to Nicole. She'll be more than happy to chat with you. Now, let's go back to the show. What's up, everyone? My name is Johan, and I'm from Vietnam. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. There's been a lot of change in, in the culture, and, and you see it with um, much more openness to LGBTQ uh, people, um, and and all all sorts of things, you know, the, especially in Canada, perhaps um, the culture is changing, and, and we're trying to incorporate more and more people. And you start to think, well, why not these other um, speakers of English? Right. I think my question would be if if again, my models were always very proficient speakers of English, never mm -hmm. really. A native speaker because I think it's as you mentioned I think it's an unrealistic expectation um, for our students to have um, I still see a lot of that happening with um, companies that you know are constantly thinking about hiring only native speakers of English um, students who constantly tell you that they want to improve their pronunciation because they want to sound more like a native speaker so this, this whole idea of native speakerism is as you said is really growing and I think people are becoming more aware Mm. said culture has changed the world is changing everything is evolving so my question to you then is this brett if the native speaker is not the model for the student what would the model be then mm -hmm. well um when i uh present um texts to my eap students at humber um Often, if I'm teaching a, a high level, our exit level is level eight. Um, so if I'm teaching level eight students, um, I will include um, some lectures by uh, a Swedish um, speaker of English or an Israeli speaker of English. And um, these are lectures that are, are available on the internet and have been watched by millions of people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just that fact that these are interesting enough to have been watched by that many people, I think gives them uh, a level of uh, value 
that would far exceed the value of, let's say, if I just spent five minutes recording my own self speaking nonsense, um, you know, as a native speaker of English, that doesn't really give it value just because I'm not native speaker of English. So the model has to be, obviously, it's got to be something that is comfortably intelligible um, to uh, users of English, hopefully around the world. Um, if you're struggling to make it out, I, I don't think that's what we want to be uh, presenting to our students. But um, if it doesn't sound like me uh, in terms of the accent, or if it doesn't uh, use exactly the same grammar as I do, or the same collocations, that's fine with me. Okay. So that's a model that we could use for listening. So you mentioned that you're teaching yeah. an AP class. What would be a good model for students in terms of their writing competency? Uh -huh. Would it be a, a highly proficient student? Um, model in terms of writing. So you mean what should something I, they would read or something when I'm marking their writing? Or? When you're marking their writing, do you have some sort of expectations in terms of what their writing should be? Mm -hmm. At what level? What's, I think my question to you is, yeah. What's the standard? Like, how okay. do you standardize? Like, this is an acceptable piece of, of writing. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm asking this question, um, actually, because I myself look at uh, my students' writing and I find that I spend less time correcting their grammar, yeah. more time focusing on the organization of their ideas, the theme mm -hmm. and the ream, the flow of ideas, the cohesion, mm -hmm. more the cohesion and the coherence, but not so much just correcting their grammar mistakes or their spelling mistakes. I'm, I'm, so I think that to yeah. me is my standard. So what is your standard? Like, what do you look for in a, in a piece of academic writing? Um, I, I don't remember, maybe about seven years ago, um, Stephen Allen uh, became the director of the English Language Center at Humber. And uh, Stephen came with uh, a very European perspective and he wanted to, um, align the Humber um, EAP program with the Common European Framework of Reference for Language. And this is also something that I had been uh, quite interested in for, for many years. And so we spent um, one May-June period, which is in the colleges sort of when we work on curriculum, um, trying to align our uh, program with the common European framework for reference uh, framework of language. CEFR, the common Definitely. European framework. Yeah, just say CFR, it's easier for us. Yeah. Um, and as part of that, our, uh, our grading rubric um, was sort of based on that as well. And it's the, the rubric has evolved over the years and, and moved closer and further um, from this EFR. But um, largely, that's what I'm looking for. And when you look at the descriptors uh, that are there and the descriptors that we use, um, many of them are simply saying what you can do. And um, they're not saying uh, things like... Um, so much you can use the present perfect uh not grammatical descriptors you mean yeah okay. they're, they're you know you can persuade somebody to to do something or you can describe in detail a, a scientific experiment or, or that kind of thing and i think that is what i'm taking as my standard for writing hmm. okay that's interesting that's interesting because places where I have worked in the past, a lot of the time the descriptors are based on grammar. The student mm -hmm. uses the passive, right. but it, they never, no, nobody's actually looking at why the passive is being used. We're just, he used the past, check. Right. The passive. He used the present perfect, check. Yeah. And not looking at, can this writer persuade? Can this write, writer use, uh, provide useful examples? Is he able to evaluate his assertions and things like that? Mm -hmm. um, just to go back, so you also teach um, a, TESO, a TESO program at, at Humber. That's right. And my question now is, you, 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 you cite, um, I, can't know if, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this person's last name correct, Nesselhauf, um, mm -hmm. I guess. I'm going yeah. to 
here. Sounds um, good. And you you mentioned you mentioned uh, I mean this writer suggests that collocations are in fact a very important part of a native speaker's uh, repertoire or yes. competence, and they should be included in any foreign language or second language teaching. How do you approach that um, when teaching collocations in a in a TESOL program? How do you expect? What do you expect from your trainees um, in in that kind of setting? Mm -hmm. um, so the the course that I teach is uh, Introduction to Language. Okay. So. Um, there is a there's a methodology course and there is a pedagogical grammar course and um my course is a little more theoretical than than those mm -hmm. uh and you know ideally we would be really uh making the links for our students between the courses um perhaps we don't do that as as well as we should um but in in my course um one of the things that i'm trying to get across to them is that frequency matters and inevitably an individual word will occur more frequently than that word in a collocation uh you know just mathematically uh it's got to occur on its own more than it occurs with other words unless it's only occurring with these other words and typically the frequency difference is orders of magnitude mm -hmm. you know a, a word that's occurring um let's say uh 2000 times per million words on its own uh is occurring in the highest collocation maybe once per million words or 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 even less than that now um there will be people who say that that word occurring on its own um doesn't well it doesn't occur on its own right and and uh when you were talking to uh susan hunt um you know she was bringing up the the point that uh uh meaning and form are not uh dissociable correct entirely. yeah so um obviously when a word occurs with another word uh it's going to be much more predictable um what the meaning of that word is going to be but i think nation makes a really good point in saying that most words have these these core meanings and uh you know when you were asking about metaphor earlier uh that metaphor extends out of a core Mm -hmm. And so there's a relationship to the core. And so often if you can get that core meaning uh, across, um, then many of the other meanings will be much more accessible, I think. So I'm trying to get my students to think about uh, how much value teaching or learning any given word is going to have. Um, I certainly point out collocations mm -hmm. and I, uh, I show them, um, the, uh, the COCA online and, um, I, I get them to think about some word pairs that they think are really highly associated and then do a search for the collocation to see how frequent they are. And everybody is, is shocked at how infrequent um or apparently you know based on the numbers that you see right um how infrequent these things are does that answer the question it does it does. Uh -huh. what i'm what i'm thinking we're not trying to say that collocations are not important um yeah. I, I think collocations are important mm -hmm. and i think the point it does answer the question but now i'm going to bring a, a, a counter argument here okay so do you not agree that advanced learners have considerable problems producing language that is somewhat acceptable to a, a, an English standard? Let's say, for example, a student that says, I was even thinking about this example earlier today. Oh, if a student says, our bodies are made of water versus mm -hmm. a student who says, our bodies are made up of water. Mm -hmm. with, with that, is that something that you, you consider a mistake? Um, 
or is that something that you would correct? Would you point out as the, the difference between made of and made up of? Because the thing about collocations, Brett, is I agree, I agree with you in, in a sense that we have to look at frequency. There are collocations that we're just randomly teaching with even more obscure words. Yeah. Um, in, the, in one of the AP programs that I was, I was teaching recently, we're teaching collocations with words that are highly infrequent. So we're teaching collocations with words that are not frequent. So the collocates with those words that are not frequent are even more. Vanishingly small. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that would be the question. So, uh, because again, when a student doesn't know how to express meaning using two words, they would yeah. say five or seven or yeah. like, like an example of that would be a student who says something like, Oh, Leo, I bought a book, but it's not a new book. It's a, it's a, it's a newer version of a book that I bought last year. So instead of saying an updated version of that book, yeah. wouldn't collocations be helpful in, in producing or in creating this, um, perhaps illusion of fluency? Um, illusion, I think might, might be a good word there. Uh, when, when my Tesla students ask me, um, that kind of thing, typically what I say is, you know, let's, let's go to the data. Um, so let's pull up the corpus and let's see what, um, made of water versus made up of water. And, uh, does made of water always mean, hundred percent H2O or is it often used um, to mean, you know, like humans where yeah. we've got a lot of H2O in us, but we've got carbon and other things as well. And, um, you know, to be honest, uh, that particular one, I think if I heard that in speech, um, I, I think it would just go right by me. Uh, I mightn't pick it up. Uh -huh. And I think, especially if it were, uh, you know, my brother uh, or, or some, you know, so-called native speaker of English who said proficient it. Proficient speaker. Let's call it proficient speaker. Let's move yes. away from the native speaker then. Um, whereas if it had been a, uh, an EAP student of mine who said it, um, perhaps I would think twice about it, but I, I don't think so. I think that one would go by me. Um, if I saw it in writing, uh, again, from an EAP student, I might, uh, take pause and, and think about what the student's trying to say and how right. successful they're being. But again, I think it's going to come down to as a reader, is it, um, comfortably comprehensible? Mm -hmm. I think if somebody had said that, you know, our bodies are made of water, um, I don't think any reasonable reader would take it to mean that we are a hundred percent water. I, I think we would just infer the meaning. And so I think that would be, um, yeah, comfortably comprehensible. So if, so if I understood this right, so you're basically saying that we should perhaps just empower students to use whatever language they have mm -hmm. in order to get their message across, whether they're using the right collocate or not, that should be okay. Like, make a friend, do a friend, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so, so you're basically saying that we shouldn't be wasting um, students' time um, trying to teach them these rather obscure collocations um, just so they can sound more like a native speaker of English. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's your argument with the whole native speakerism. So, so should there perhaps be a division in terms of teaching vocab or perhaps collocations in this case, maybe teaching students to just notice collocations or maybe collocations that are very important for receptive knowledge and collocations that are more useful for, for production. Would, would that sure. be, some, would that be like some sort of a, um, an alternative? Yeah. I, I think there is value in um, bringing students attention to this idea of uh, collocations to the fact that collocations exist. Um, I think in a program, you have to be careful about that because, uh, you know, it'll end up being one of these things where at every level, the, the next teacher is once again, bringing their attention to this. And it's not such a hard concept. You know, it doesn't no, really no. require uh, constant um, reinforcement. Um, but certainly, I, I think there's value in pointing it out. 
Um, but having pointed it out, then um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, introducing specific collocations explicitly. Mm. Um, what I will do is that um, if I'm uh, working on vocabulary and um, coming up with example sentences, uh, I will choose the example sentences with the very strong collocates uh, with the target word. And, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, everybody knows Wiktionary uh, or mm -hmm. Wikipedia. Yeah. I, I'm not sure as many people know that there is also a Wiktionary. And fewer still probably know that there is a simple English Wiktionary. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to link that on the podcast. Simple yeah. English Wiktionary. I didn't know that. Simple English Wiktionary. And um, I've been working on the Simple English Wiktionary since 2006. And uh, As a writer as well? Are you writing for the Simple? I've, I've made probably 16,000 uh, edits on oh, wow. the Simple <laughs> English Wiktionary. Most of the basic academic word list there um, I've... I've put in and uh, nice. example sentences there um, I've chosen uh, where I had put the sentences in. I mean, other people work on it as well, but where I've put the sentences in, I've chosen the sentences to have um, the, the best collocates that, that they can. So I think when we're trying to exemplify something, mm. including the collocates there, uh, is, is good and useful. Mm -hmm. But then taking the next step to say that, you know, all right, so student, I want you to memorize this or I expect you to use this. Uh, I don't think that's the right step to take. Okay. So what would be the, the best step? So, cause we've, we've been talking about, you know, what's, I don't want to focus too much on why teaching collocations is important but what's important in teaching collocations mm -hmm. so that would be it then just focusing on students noticing language students i i think what i don't know if you're what you're saying is this but i like the idea of having students decide what is an important collocation mm -hmm. like this is something that i find useful and i would most likely use it as opposed to as you said just testing them and expecting to see collocations in their um production either speaking yeah. or writing again i i think i might uh if, if a student pulls out a collocation um so now this is my eap students not my tesla students but if a student pulls out a collocation or or notices something and says that's something i want to use um i think again i would if i had some time i would say well let's let's go to the the data and and see how frequent is that Mm -hmm. uh, how much time should you be spending um, thinking about how to use this or, or practicing it or, or something like that. And almost invariably, I think with my EAP students who are um, uh, hopefully exiting uh, our EAP program at, at the B2 plus level, mm -hmm. um, I think that almost inevitably there are words that they don't know that would be more that would give them a better payback than the collocations that they don't know let's take a quick break we'll be right back you know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. 
head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi, my name is Yasmin. I'm from Iran. And right now you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Almost invariably, I think, with my EAP students who are um, uh, hopefully exiting uh, our EAP program at, at the B2 plus level, mm-hmm. um, I think that almost inevitably there are words that they don't know that would be more, that would give them a better payback than the collocations that they don't know almost invariably what would be a good example of that like a a word like that well i mean even going through the academic word list Mm. uh i i have um students you know spanish speakers who have really strong coverage of the academic word list um but i have vietnamese speakers or uh, chinese speakers who are pretty patchy yeah and um you know there's probably three or four hundred words uh maybe not that much but maybe two or three hundred words from the academic word list uh that i think would stand them in much better stead to learn than um to learn almost any collocation Okay. So when you mentioned the academic word list and these, in these specific words, do you find that it's better to focus on receptive knowledge of those academic words or productive knowledge? Because I've seen programs where they basically focus more on the production of these words, which I am completely against because a student that doesn't know the word exacerbate mm-hmm. will probably mix it up with different words that have similar meaning and similar pronunciation. Um, I <laughs> on the radio do that. Yeah. <laughs> This word, uh, this exasperating the problem. Yes. Uh, what happens is the mo- I, what I find with my students, especially the EAP in the EAP segment, is they're constantly trying to write with these academic words. Yeah. And they end up with basically a piece of writing that is unintelligible. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't understand what you're trying to say because you're trying to use all these academic words and you have a very basic grasp of very general words. Yeah. So I think my question to you is, in your opinion, I have my own, uh, for me, academic word list is receptive. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on this issue? Yeah, I think that, again, for my students um, at a college, uh, maybe at the exit level um, from EAP, uh, any of those words that they can use, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But um, really, I'm trying to get them to the point where they can be successful in their first year of college. And um, a lot of that success is uh, being able to do the reading and being able to listen to uh, the lectures or the discussions with their peers and understand them. And if they the more they can contribute, obviously the better. But um, if we're trying to keep them in EAP until they can contribute wonderfully and, and use all these words productively and everything, they'll be here for years. Yeah. And that's not what they want. Yeah. And that's true. So the last point you made in, in the, in the paper was that, um, and I think you, you drew a parallel with teaching pronunciation, which again is something that I don't really um, believe in, getting students to sound more like a native speaker when I agree with you, they should just focus on intelligibility. And you said that we should treat uh, the learning and, and the teaching of collocations in the same vein, that we should mm-hmm. be teaching them um, comfortably intelligible collocations rather than native-like ones. Yeah. What would be a good example of these comfortably intelligible collocations? Well, um, 
I, I think the one that you brought up earlier, uh, you know, our bodies are made of water versus made up of water. Um, uh, some of the examples that Nesselhorf uh, brings up, and uh, these seem to be um, mostly uh, prepositional um, yeah. collocations. Um, but uh, I think in one of your earlier podcasts, somebody was saying that uh, you can say absolutely furious, but you can't say absolutely angry. Right. Um, and, you know, the, I wouldn't usually say absolutely angry and unless I'm sort of contradicting somebody and saying, absolutely, I am angry. Um, right. But uh, I don't think that if somebody said to me that they were absolutely angry, I don't think I could mistake their meaning. Huh. I should pull up that absolutely angry in terms of uh, data here. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> absolutely angry. I, I, will also, I, I would say absolute anger, yeah. but not absolutely angry. Yeah. Um, I think the problem I have with, with collocations, Brett, is again, you're talking about this idea of teaching them comfortably intelligible collocations is where can teachers have access to them, especially when most materials for the language classroom are written by native speakers. So that's where we have a disconnect here. Um, most textbooks are written, written by, by native speakers, mm -hmm. teaching collocations that Again, I don't know how many of them are comfortably intelligible collocations, and there are very few books that actually teach or emphasize collocations. It's usually mm -hmm. one section in a textbook with two verbs, do and make, or have sure. and get, yeah. things like that. So how do we, how do, how would you, what, what's your suggestion for us to address this issue when we don't have materials for teachers? To address the, I mean, mostly what I'm saying is let's not. Let's not then, okay. <laughs> Let's not address it. But I mean, if, if you're trying to um, come up with something like, you know, if you're teaching the idea of collocations for the first time, right. your students really have not thought about this before, um, I would certainly go to uh, Mark Davies' um, Corpus of Contemporary American English and, um, and just put in a word and, and click the collocation link and see what comes up. And, you know, I'll ask my students to... Um, suggest the words mm. and uh, even ask them to make some guesses about uh, what words go together uh, with those words um, and then go in there and, and see what what actually happens in um, in the corpus and you know to a certain extent that um, itself is uh, a little bit of na native speakerism because um, when when Davies put together the corpus, um, he he was he tried to be careful to uh, exclude um, so-called non-native speakers of English. Right. Uh, but then he's gone beyond that with the iWeb corpus and and all okay. these others, which uh, you know happily include a broad swath of right. English users uh, across the um, across the net. So if you want to know, like, if I want to know what would I probably say, um, introspection is useful to a certain extent, but I think the book, uh, probably would help me get a better handle on that. Um, and I use that in my own writing from time to time, Same. not often, but, but from time to time. Um, but, uh, yeah. I, I think it's useful for students to see these these patterns, um, but then we can move away from that and and say again. But but if you're going to say that, um, and if you happen to say it slightly differently than this, uh, I'm good with that. Hmm. Interesting. That's very interesting. I I never thought about collocations from that perspective i do i do see your point with the whole native speakerism i don't the funny thing about about this is i had a korean student and i just remember that story when you were talking about collocations she learned a lot of chunks of language she learned most of her english through um friends sitcoms and all that okay and she was my student and i always emphasize this idea of noticing language and and choosing whatever you think it 
best represents the kind of English that you want to speak, not really trying to impose on them anything. Yeah. Um, but what, what was interesting about this specific student is that whenever she opened her mouth, you would think her English was at a C1 level because she would uh -huh. all speak using these amazing chunks of language. You would think, wow, where did you learn to speak like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then whenever she went out of her depth or she was out of depth in, in some sort of conversation, you would notice that her English was actually quite, right. <laughs> I would say, A2 to B1. But it's amazing uh -huh. how in everyday English she was very fluid because she was able to, to recall from memory all these highly useful, intelligible chunks of language, I should say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my, wife, um, my wife is Japanese and um, she has this pronunciation uh, of English that is remarkably... Um, almost North American. Okay. Uh, you know, you can listen to her and, and you notice that she probably didn't grow up in North America, but right. she sounds quite North American. And um, so when we first met um, her, uh, she, she'd never um, lived abroad or anything. And um, her English level was perhaps, I don't know, a B2, okay. um, something like that. But her pronunciation made her sound like she was um, quite proficient. Right. And this actually ran her into trouble uh, a number of times where, um, you know, people would just assume that she, she was following along and would just be carrying along and she was completely lost. And, wow. uh, huh. and how um, did she improve her pronunciation? How did she get to that level of, uh, of intelligibility? That's a mystery. I, mm. I don't know. She, um, you know, she, she lived in Japan. She took uh, language courses. I, I think she was just a, um, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from her. She worked very hard, uh, I'm sure. But uh, it was before I met her. And uh, huh. yeah. Because I find that, especially with teaching pronunciation, I, I haven't really seen a student that has improved <laughs> Their, their pronunciation from, from doing minimal pairs in the classroom right. or just focusing on one sound. I find that there are more effective techniques um, that could perhaps um, bring up your pronunciation to a more intelligible level, which again should be um, the aim um, in the classroom, especially with mm -hmm. students. You just have to be intelligible. And yeah. that's something that I usually tell, tell my students. But it's interesting, this whole idea of, of teaching intelligible, intelligible collocations. I wonder, this is the other question I was going to ask you, is there a corpus, I haven't actually looked into this, but is there a corpus of non-native speakers? Uh, yeah, um, uh, Sylvie, um, what's her name? Uh, in Louvain. Oh, um, yes. She, she has a, a corpus of uh, non-native English speaker writing. Okay. Uh, I think Flowerdew, um, when he was at Hong Kong, used to have uh, a corpus. I don't know if he's there anymore. Uh, but yeah, there, there are certainly a number of corpora of non, like of student writing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know of any specifically um, spoken uh, corpora. Uh, I, I just found one here. It's the ETS corpus of non-native written English. And there are a few other ones that are mostly um, mm -hmm. written English. But yeah, you're right. I also haven't really come across any that is mostly um, spoken English. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Not, not many. I think the, uh, the Michigan corpus is probably the only one that I use mm -hmm. for spoken English. Um, well, before we wrap up, I have a few rapid fire questions. These are questions that I like to ask. Okay. Guests. So my first question would be, what advice would you have given to your 20, 30-year-old self, your younger teacher self? Oh, don't be such a jerk. <laughs> 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 uh, Why? Why is that? I, uh, I mean, I guess probably um, I, I was really arrogant. Really? I, I, okay. Really arrogant. I mean... As I said, I was living in Japan in my early 20s, and um, uh, 
I was living in this so-called gaijin house, which is just sort of a rundown place for foreigners, um, you know, cheap uh, lodgings. <laughs> and um, there were a lot of people who had been there for quite some time. And when I saw them there, I just thought, man, these people are losers. I'm going to learn Japanese so much faster than them. <laughs> it's, and, it's amazing. Oh, my. And I guess you have a terrible ego. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Terrible. <sighs> so don't be such a jerk. Oh, that would, that would be good advice to a lot of people that I worked with. Um, <laughs> what are some bad recommendations that you often hear in our profession? Um, some bad recommendations. I don't, um, I mean, I guess I hear things that are, um, my, my feeling is that they're not particularly helpful. Things like focus on, on making things fun. Yes. Um, and um, I mean, certainly don't, focus on making things unfun. If, right. if things can be fun, that's fantastic. But the students are not here to have fun. At least I, I think most of my students are not. Um, they're here to learn the language. And um, studying uh, involves um, deliberate practice. And one of the things about deliberate practice is that it, it's just not fun. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you ask... Um, virtuoso violinists or, or great tennis players or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, these swimmers who get up at four o'clock in the morning and then dive into a cold pool and, and swim, I don't know how many kilometers back and forth and back and forth. It's mind numbing. It's awful, but they do it because they've got a goal and you know, there's fun parts of it and achieving your goal can be fun. But, um, the idea that every part of your lesson has to be fun. Uh, I, I think there are some people, maybe not many, maybe this is a straw man, but uh, I, I think there are some people who buy into that. And I think that's bad advice. I, I still think that fun plays a huge role in, in lesson planning, in observations. And no, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. I usually tell my students, if you're really, if you're really engaged and whatever we're doing in the classroom, you will be automatic. You will be having fun. You're what we call it. You're being induced to this state of uh, what flow. are they? Flow, flow. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm really deep into the flow now. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, my last question is a different one, but now it's looking at new teachers, especially because you work in a Tesla program. Yeah. What advice would you give to a smart, driven new teacher who's about to enter the classroom? Um, it depends so much on the teacher. I mean, if the teacher had been me again, I'd be, don't be such a jerk. Um, but if it's, um, I, I had a, a, a a student teacher uh, a few years ago um, who was originally from Jamaica and um, she had moved to New York and spent some time there and then came up and she was doing her TESOL program um, with us. And she said that her accent um, when she moved to New York was really thick. Mm. And I, I said to her, you know, what, what do you mean it was thick? What, what does thick mean? And she said, well, it was really hard for people to understand. And okay, hard for some people to understand, but why is that a thick accent? Um, you know, if I go to Jamaica, I don't have the, the accent that most Jamaicans use. Um, perhaps they wouldn't find me hard to understand because they've listened to Hollywood movies and, and this kind yeah. of thing. Not that I sound Hollywood at all, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the adjective thick is a really prejudicial adjective mm -hmm. and to apply that to oneself, um, I think means that 
you have been conditioned to think about, uh, you know, I guess basically native speakerism again, you know, there are, there are prestige ideal models. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a, um, a teacher coming in to the profession and your English doesn't um, fit into one of those prestige models, um, have, you know, have some pride and uh, be j just go for it and and don't worry about it um, because uh, if you're being hired to teach this, almost certainly your employer thinks that you're qualified to teach it and um, just trust in that and go with it. That's good. Um, I, I'm going to use a comfortably intelligible collocation. I'll just say that this is sound advice. Okay. <laughs> well, Brett, we're out of time. Okay. I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I want to end with a quote by Confucius, which I think clearly illustrates what you were saying, this idea of fun that uh -huh. I think he said that education is, is key to everything. And um, I think he was talking about flow when he said this, a person should should be so deep in studying and learning that he forgets to eat. He is so full of joy and learning that he ignores all practical worries. And he's so busy acquiring knowledge that he doesn't even notice old age coming. I think that's, that's a good way to end. I, I hope you're not implying that old age is coming for me, Leo. Well, it's coming for all of us. It's coming for all of us. Yeah. I've been, I've been suffering from a, from a back pain all day today, but again, not focusing too much on the pain, focusing on the positives. Right. Um, but anyway, Brad, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. And that was great having you on the show. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.